All right. Uh, so listen, we're going to do some history. So you're going to have to stay with me. If you're falling asleep, you've got to pull a leg hair out or something because uh, <laughs> it's not going to be scintillating at first. Uh, you're going to have to stay with me, but it's going to pay off. Do you trust me? We, we trust. Okay. So uh, I, I'm very interested in Matthew quoting Isaiah. So he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah two separate times during the early chapters when we get the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. So um, I, I'm plagiarizing, but well, I guess I'm not because I'm going to give credit. Plagiarizing is if I just stole it, right? So uh, I was inspired to ask some of these questions by Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, it's a progressive church. I love their podcast. Uh, I find it to be enlightening all the time, lots of times. I think there'll be a slide that has the little icon. You can find it on your podcast app if you want. But I was listening. This is like several years old to these old uh, sermons, and they began talking about Matthew quoting Isaiah, and I got very curious. What's going on? Why would Matthew do this? So I want you to think about Matthew like a human person in an actual context with an actual audience in mind as he begins to craft the birth of Jesus, this narrative, this story. He's not an ethereal being with no context. Matthew is not God. Matthew is a human being, right? Uh, taking the oral traditions, these stories, and writing them down, crafting them as we know it. And he's doing it for particular reasons. So I want to try to unearth why might Matthew be doing this, okay? So uh, I've got, I'm going to have my little laser pointer if I need it. Yes, all right. Um, so uh, go to the timeline slide, Sol. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book of Matthew. If you can't see this, that's okay. I'll tell you orally, right? Wow, I thought for sure my... my, my... Oh, it just doesn't show up on the screen. You have the laser pointer. All right. So you can see Matthew up at the top, so it's above the 80. So Matthew's right there. It's uh, but some, somewhere around 80 AD is when the book of Matthew uh, is written in the formulation and the formation that we have now, right? 80 AD. So this is after Christ's death. This is after Christ's resurrection, right? This is decades later. But I need to tell you what happened in the midst of this, right? So when Jesus is walking, teaching, living, dying, resurrecting, Rome is the occupying force. Many of you know this, right? So Rome is the dominant military occupying force, and Rome allows the Israelites to sort of practice their faith as long as they're loyal to Caesar. That's, the, that's like the, the political context when Jesus is teaching and when he's alive. When Jesus dies, Rome is still in power, right? They don't go away. Some Roman emperors are kind of nice to early Christians. Some Roman emperors are not so nice to early Christians. It kind of depends. But at some point, well, it's 66 AD, so 66 years after Christ's death, there is a Jewish uprising, right? So the Jews get tired of Rome. Get out of here, Rome. We don't want you to occupy us anymore. So they create a military coup and they begin to push Rome out. And in fact, the Jews are successful in getting Rome out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, right? So now you have this violent clash. It lasts for four years. 
Rome in 70 AD is able to call in their forces from other parts of the world because the Roman Empire is large. They lay siege to Jerusalem. They defeat the Jewish uprising and they destroy the temple again. In 70 AD, the temple is redestroyed. And in fact, uh, history suggests that Rome actually took many of the holy symbols, icons, other things out as a way to humiliate the Jews in the midst of their defeat. And then here comes Matthew. Ten years later, approximately, seven, eight, ten years later, in the midst of a community in total despair. Rome has once again crushed their, their desire, their uprising, their quest for independence. Rome is occupying them in a way now that is violent, that is oppressive. And Matthew is trying to write to this community to remind them about what God has done in the person of Jesus. So he's writing to a community in despair, and he's writing to them about hope. Right? We okay with that? Okay. So what does Matthew do in the midst of telling the story about Jesus? He does what many of us do. He goes and mines his own scriptures to find stories of hope. And so Matthew goes to the only scripture at that time available to him, which was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So he goes to the scriptures and he starts trying to, you can, I can just picture him like mining these things for hope, to find hope in the midst of our story as Jews, as Israelites. And so he lands in the book of Isaiah, right? And he quotes from Isaiah about this woman who's going to give birth to a son and this is to be a symbol of hope. Now, as Christians, we read Isaiah and we're like, aha, Isaiah was talking about Jesus. But Isaiah was written 800 years before Jesus was born, right? So we have a double context. We've got Isaiah. Who's Isaiah writing to? What's Isaiah writing about? Such that Matthew, 800 years later, might find hope from it. If we can understand this, then maybe in our own context today, 2,000 years after Jesus, we might be able to learn how to find hope in those ancient texts. So I'm going to put a pin in Matthew. Boop. Temple destroyed, Rome abusing, despair. Matthew turns to the book of Isaiah as a way to help tell the Jesus story. Pin. We're going to rewind. We're going to go 800 years. Now we're going to talk about Isaiah. Matthew's quoting Isaiah. What's he quoting? What's going on there? We okay? You still with me? Just a little bit more history. Okay. So uh, let me give you just a little context. Next slide, so you can go two forward. So this is uh, Isaiah. This is the, the larger context that Matthew quotes. Okay? So then I say, Isaiah said he's talking to Ahaz. He's the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So Isaiah's talking to the king. Listen, house of David, isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you are also tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. He will eat butter and honey and learn to reject evil and choose good. Before the boy learns to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. 
The Lord will bring upon you, upon your people and upon your families, days unlike any that have since the day of Ephraim broke away from Judah, the king of Assyria. It's interesting because Matthew sort of misquotes Isaiah. Isaiah says, the woman is pregnant and will give birth to a son and she will name it Emmanuel. Matthew says, the virgin will become pregnant in the future, right? And she will name him Emmanuel. So what's happening in Isaiah? So let me give you some context here. So you have a, I have a timeline slide, Saul. So I'm going to need your laser pointer again. So if you go to Division of the Kingdom, to the right, right there, Division of the Kingdom, you scroll down, it's like 922 B.C. So we're now before Christ, right? Hundreds of years before. And what you end up when the, with the Division of the Kingdom is this. Israel has 12 tribes, right? Jacob has 12 sons. Each of them ends up a tribe of Israel. The 12 tribes make up the entire nation. And for at least a while, they were together. So you would have, like, the, like King David, he's king over the 12 tribes of Israel. But after Saul, David, Solomon, the kingdom can't get along anymore. All of a sudden, it's not the united tribes of Israel, it's the divided tribes of Israel. So now, all of a sudden, for lots of reasons, if you're a Benjaminite, that became more important than being part of the nation of Israel. It would be like saying being part of Idaho is more important than being part of the United States, right? More pride in my tribe than in the nation of Israel. So there's tons of infighting. And in, and in 922, there's a civil war and they split. Ten tribes of Israel go to the north. Two tribes of Israel go to the south. So the next slide, Sol. So you can sort of see it color-coded. The blue is the northern kingdom, ten tribes. The yellow is the southern kingdom, two tribes. In the south, you have Jerusalem, right? Uh, you have the line of the first monarchy, right? The line of David is in the south. The north has more land, more tribes, more people, more money, but they don't have Jerusalem. And now there's bitterness. In the Bible, this is documented in 1st and 2nd Kings. It's documented in 1st and 2nd Chronicles, this history, right? Um... The ten tribes to the north are referred to as Israel now. So when you hear the word Israel often in the Old Testament, it's only referring to the ten tribes to the north. The two tribes to the south are referenced as Judah. So when you hear the term Judah, the Lion of Judah, right, those are the two tribes to the south, right? So we've got this split. Go back to the division, Saul. So Isaiah is a prophet, and Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Okay, so he's talking to King Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. He's not the king of the north. And in fact, Ahaz finds himself in despair. And here's why. The northern kingdom, Israel, has partnered with uh, Aram. So can you, see, uh, can you see to the right the Aramean tribe, Saul, to the far right? Nope. Go down to the, it's A-R-A-M, Aramean tribes. To the far right? That's okay. It's, it's on the far right of the screen. So Israel, the northern kingdom, has, yes, there you go, has partnered now with Aram, and they together want to attack Judah. They want to defeat Judah. They want to destroy Judah. In part because they want Judah's resources and they want their military because they see the real threat, which is in the far north, the Assyrian Empire is coming. So the Assyrians are coming. The northern kingdom is close to Assyria. They're afraid. 
They partner with Aram. They're going to attack Judah, which means King Ahaz, only my little two tribes. I don't have the military power. There's no way I can fend them off. It's our own people that are going to come take us over. And he finds himself in total despair. There's no way that we can fight off Israel and Aram, right? And if we find a way to do that, how would we ever fight off Assyria? So Isaiah comes to Ahaz to try to give him hope in the midst of despair. And so uh, Ahaz considers partnering with Assyria first. If Israel and Aram want to come after me, what if I just go to the big dogs and partner with them? Then maybe we can destroy Israel, the northern kingdom, and we can maintain our autonomy. And of course, Isaiah says, do you know how many strings will be attached if you partner yourself with Assyria? There's no way they're going to allow you to remain faithful to God, to Yahweh, to the temple. So he talks Ahaz out of partnering with Assyria. Well, then what? Then what, Isaiah? What's your great advice for me now? I'm surrounded by my enemies. And this is when Isaiah says, the woman is going to become pregnant or is pregnant. You're going to name them Emmanuel, God with us. And that is going to be a sign of the hope that you have, that God has not left you or abandoned you. Scholars largely agree that Isaiah is talking about Ahaz's wife, who ends up getting pregnant and giving birth to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, who every mention in scripture of Hezekiah is that he was an amazing king, a good king, a just king. And in fact, in the genealogies of Jesus, Hezekiah gets mentioned every time in every genealogy. Ahaz, who by the way at this point is 20 years old, has no idea what he's doing and feels in despair. Your wife is pregnant. Your line will continue the future, the next generation will be born. God has not abandoned you. God is with you. And trust me when I tell you, it is not a straight line for the southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually, the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom Israel, but eventually, the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom Judah. People end up in exile. It is not a straight line from Ahaz to Hezekiah to Jesus. It is tumultuous, but... Through it all, through every step, God is with them. So I want to come back to Matthew. Matthew overseeing the smoldering ruins of the temple, a Roman occupying force who refuses to grant Israel freedom, talking to a group of people who find themselves utterly in despair. And he says, But don't you remember our story? Don't you remember Ahaz? Don't you remember what? Ahaz was facing, and what did Isaiah say? A child will be born, a child will be given, and in that child we will find hope. And that's how Matthew frames the birth of Jesus. When you are at the end of your rope, when you are the most in despair and isolated, we recall, we light again the candle of hope to say God has not abandoned us. No matter what it seems, no matter what it appears, God has not left us to our own devices. God's love, God's presence, God's peace, God's joy is here even now in this room. And so we recall, as Matthew did, all the ways in which God has shown up when we least expected it. When we thought hope was lost and it hadn't been lost. All the times when it was like, where's 
what, what, where do I go next, Lord? And in the midst of confusion and pain and loss, God, in the most surprising times, shows up once again. So Matthew sets this amazing example of reading Scripture, the book of Isaiah in this case, and applying it immediately to his context. Right? How, how, how can the book of Isaiah speak again to the people of Israel after the temple's been destroyed by the Romans? And I want to submit this challenge to you. How can the story of Christ's birth, the idea that God took on flesh and bone to love us up close in human form, how can that story come alive for us now in the 21st century, in the midst of mass shootings and campus stabbings and a country divided on politics and theology and families that can't figure out how to get along and economic inequality and a housing crisis, how can God continue to speak to us through the story of God not leaving us alone, but showing up? So I want to say one thing as I close. There are some things for which we have some control over. And my prayer is that for those things that we have control over, we would be hope embodied. That this season you would find a way or ways that Christ might be born through you. Christ might be born again in you and through you by the way in which you love, the way in which you give, the way in which you show up. That when people see not only your life, but this church, right, this place, that they would see hope embodied, right? A hope that doesn't pretend everything's going to be great and wonderful and joyful all the time. It's a hope that says, but I, no matter what, God has not left. But there are other things for which we have no control. Like Emily has no control over her situation. Many of you, there are things for which you don't have any control. Hope looks a little different then. I don't get to just embody hope. I don't get to like put it on it because I don't, know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to control it. And for that, I say hope looks something like continuing to take whatever step forward looks like for you. I talked about Emily saying, Emily, feel it all. That's what hope looks like. Mm -hmm. it's not, it won't break you. It can't destroy you. It won't get the last word. Whatever the diagnosis is, it will not get the last word. God will get the last word. And hope will get the last word. And we're reminded that in the pages of Matthew's gospel. And we're reminded of that in the pages of Isaiah's prophecy. And I pray that we might make those live again in 2022. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God of hope. You are a God that breaks through the darkness. You are a God that just when we think we're at our wit's end, you show up in all kinds of creative ways. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would allow us to be some of those creative ways, that we would be hope and body, that Christ would be born in us this Advent season. And for those who feel powerless to change the circumstance, Lord, give them the strength and the courage and the grace to turn to you and to take one more step forward. We're grateful for the hope that you give and continue to provide. Amen. Please stand and sing with me.
afflicted Jesus, born to set thy people free from our sins and fears. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Joy to those who long to see spring from on high up here come thou promised rod of jesse of thy birth we long to hear o'er the hills the angels singing news glad tidings of a birth go to him your praises bringing christ the lord has come to earth come to earth to taste our sadness he whose glories knew no end by his life he brings us gladness our redeemer shepherd friend leaving riches without number born within a cattle stall this the everlasting wonder christ was born to lord of all let's go back to that first verse Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art dear desire of every nation joy of every longing heart
But rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. In Bethlehem, in Israel, this blessed babe was born and laid within a manger upon this blessed. 